Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Going back to the bigger picture of relevance, I think what we bring to what we do in liberal arts is that before students are engineers or computer scientists, before they are professionals, before they are students even, they are citizens and human beings. And so we also want to remain relevant to that part of who these students are. And it's in our department that they get that. And in a sense, I see all Kettering students as our students. Hello, this is Tim Troop Noonan, and that was Dr. Babak Elahi, head of Kettering's Liberal Studies Department, soon to be known as the Liberal Arts Department, discussing the department's fundamental purpose in the education of Kettering undergraduates. Our chat about the role and importance of liberal arts inside a STEM education, from communications to ethics to psychology to art history, follows right now. Dr. Babak Elahi, Head of Liberal Studies at Kettering University, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, you're kind of interestingly placed in a STEM institution. You're right. a scholar of literature, both Iranian and American, as well as a scholar of some other cultural issues like fabrics and very interesting stuff, but it seems a long way from engineering. Give me a little understanding of what the Department of Liberal Studies is and where it fits in the constellation at Kettering. Sure. So first of all, I'm used to being the liberal arts guy at STEM institutions. That's kind of been my career. And the role that liberal arts plays in any institution, in addition to offering their own majors, which we don't, is that they round out what the students get in terms of humanities, arts, social sciences, and communication. And for an institution like Kettering, in order to be accredited as a university, there has to be some amount of these general education requirements. And those general education requirements tend to be outside the student's major, and they have to include things like writing and communication, some level of history, some social science. So that sort of broad-based education that we expect a responsible citizen of the United States to have, that's kind of what we bring. Specifically, this department delivers humanities, social science, and communication, and some arts, although not art practice. So they're not painting or making music. We've offered that, but only as sort of free electives. So generally, we expect that students will graduate from Kettering with 32 credits or eight classes out of this department that introduce them to subjects like history, sociology, literature, communication, and so forth. And by the time they graduate, this complements with an E their professional training so that when they go into the profession, they have those, and I don't tend to like this term, but it's out there, the soft skills that a lot of employers want, right? So the employers want the students to be able to communicate. They want them to have some ethical reasoning to sort of make decisions. And as the students go through our 
department, they get what I prefer to call as opposed to soft skills, those essential skills that they need. One thing that I always enjoy is sharing with people and confirm if I'm right, that despite the fact that you can't major, you can major in electrical engineering, civil engineering, et cetera, but you can't major in liberal studies. Having said that, it's the largest department at Kettering in terms of courses taken. Am I correct? In terms of credit hours that students take and generate, yeah, it's right there. I think math and our department are kind of neck and neck with that. Simply because everybody has to take it. Yeah, every student has to go through our department. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a way, we are all Kettering students are our students. <laughs> well, the, the other thing, and that's what I want to get into, is that I'm aware that there's been a lot of energy put into your department in terms of where it's going, its role in the university, it's changing. And we're going to talk about some of that, how it's not just sitting there statically teaching a few basic writing courses, far from it. But that's what I want to talk about. But prior to that, give me a little bit of the history of the department, because I know that Major Sobey in 1919 had business English and letter writing, and he was very strong on the importance of writing. But then where did the department go from that point over the last to get to where we are now? Sure. I mean, I think that early realization by Major Sobey, those who started GMI, that students would need in those days, they might have called it sort of business friendly skills that developed. And throughout the 30s, 40s and 50s, in addition to things like business English letter writing, There was a realization that students needed psychology in the sense that students should understand sort of organizational behavior, how people tick in terms of whether students who graduate end up in managerial positions. So for a long time, the emphasis, in addition to communication, became sort of managerial skills. Then in the 60s and 70s, there was more of a realization that to be accredited that other sort of seemingly disparate areas like literature and art and history would be necessary as well. And I think that that was a good step. So by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, you have offerings in areas like literature. At the turn of this century, this department also realized that the key mission of the university, leadership, it's there in the mission statement. And so a senior seminar in leadership was established 20 years ago. And even though that has changed a little bit recently, it's still there. And the emphasis is, is on, as the title of the course says, leadership, ethics, and contemporary issues. Well, I know that if people look at the course offerings, they're somewhat what you would expect. And, and some of them are, are kind of surprising. But you arrived at Kettering in 2017? More recently, 2019, actually. 2019 from? My most recent place was Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York. And you mentioned having to pivot. Tell me a little bit about what you encountered with STEAM and and some of the directions that you felt you needed to go and what started to happen upon your arrival. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was talking to a few folks about the position and then interviewed for it, there was a lot of energy around. So sort of injecting that A of arts into STEM programs. In the course of that first year that I was here, 19 to 20, so, you know, it's only been two years, the university itself pivoted, I think, and 
as you know, there's a realignment and reinvention process underway. And I realized that at least the explicit emphasis shifted away from STEAM. But I think what we saw in our department is that there was still an important need for those kinds of things that that STEAM orientation had. So rather than sort of ditch those ideas, we thought, okay, how can we repackage them and reframe them for this new realignment? So I'll give you one example. In that first year that I was here, we ended up hiring a philosophy faculty member. We haven't had philosophy in the department for over 15 years, at least not as a designated faculty member in that area. And we thought, okay, even though the university is pivoting from STEAM to an emphasis on, for example, mobility and autonomous vehicles, and that seems to be sort of the direction of the future, we thought some of those elements that, are, that were already in this notion of arts and humanities could continue to serve a role. And in this case, philosophy in terms of ethics, injecting those ideas into how we approach the development of new technologies, the challenges, but also the advantages, the risks. And I think sort of ethical approach to that would be, so that's just one example. You know, other examples, we could continue to think about things like design principles and how they are important to the shifting auto industry, for example. I mean, things are changing, have been changing. And to think about how the arts can contribute to new directions in industry. It was a pivot, but not necessarily away from the core ideas that we teach in the department. It was simply to say, okay, how do we apply them to this new direction that the university is taking? And I'll throw out for some people who may not be familiar with the term, most will, but STEAM is STEM with an A in it for arts. That's right, yeah. So exactly. uh, I'm talking with Dr. Babak Alahi, head of the Liberal Studies Department, soon to be the Liberal Arts Department at Kettering. So I understand you're going in some new directions. What's the flavor, particularly from a student standpoint, and the role of the liberal arts in the larger STEM environment at Kettering now, today, 2021 and 22, as we're going back? In terms of the flavor of the department, I guess I'll divide it into sort of two types of flavor. One is what are the foundational elements of the department? And then sort of what are the variety of directions that students can go. So I think foundationally, what we do is in the area of critical thinking, communication, ethics, global and cultural awareness. And I think wrapped into that is also sort of self-awareness and self-knowledge. So, so those are sort of foundational areas. And so in our first communication class, we convey the communication skills in Liberal Studies 201, which is titled The Human Condition. We really develop students' critical thinking skills about humanities and social sciences. In the advanced electives, a lot of the emphasis are on things like global and cultural awareness, but also ethics. And then the senior seminar focuses on ethics and, and leadership. There's also an, a required economics course economics gives them that sort of quantitative approach. So that's the foundation are sort of encapsulated in those areas. And then the various directions that students can go, given that we're a small department, I think we cover a lot of ground. 
So, Bobic, we've talked about the history of the program and, and your arrival at, at Kettering and, and sort of the pivot that it's gone through. But talk to me about liberal studies from the standpoint of a student. I'm a student. I arrive on campus and I'm learned that I have to take this liberal arts core, liberal studies core. Right. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to build bridges. I'm going to work on powertrains. Yeah. Why yeah. do I need liberal studies? And yeah. what am I going to study? What, what, what are we trying to do here? Somebody explain that to me. Right. So tell that's, me, go ahead. That's a great question. I mean, I think you must get there, it. Some there's, we do get that question, but there are technical answers to it. And then there are broader philosophical questions, I guess, deeper questions about the technical answer to the question is that it's required for accreditation of the programs. So engineers themselves and educators in engineering say that students must have some level of exposure to economic thinking, to ethics and communication. So those are sort of part and parcel of what's expected of students who graduate with a degree in economics. I'm sorry, in engineering. So that's sort of the technical answer that it's required for accreditation. But how much is required for accreditation and what kind of nature does it take in each institution? At Kettering, what we tell them is that their technical skills will get them in the door at wherever they end up working. It's their skills in communication, in ethics and leadership that that get them up the elevator to the C-suite, right? So it's- Which is where everybody wants to go. Or a lot yeah, of right. I mean, I don't mean to be crass about it. I, th- I think it's it's also about making a meaningful impact on the world, right? So I think that's even more important than selling it to them as it advances your career. You can actually make a difference because you're aware of these problems, not just as technical problems, but as societal and cultural and political economic problems. And having that preparation is important. So what does it look like specifically here? Well, our foundation really is on a number of levels. One is communication, which they get right up front. It's one of the first classes they take in their first year. Communication 101 that kind of lays the groundwork for them understanding rhetoric and understanding different genres of writing so that they'll have to write in a certain way for one context and a different way for another context. Then in their second year, they'll take sophomore seminar and economics 201. Sophomore seminar, the the subtitle of the course is Understanding the Human Condition. And broadly, what we pack into that are development of critical thinking skills. So rather than bringing their opinion about the human condition, getting them to think about how to analyze different questions ethical problems and issues related to what it means to be a human in a society. And so that kind of critical thinking really encourages them to approach things by asking questions rather than just supplying their opinion. That's interesting. And, I, and you and I've talked about this before, and, and you're, you're eloquent on it, because you know one of the things a lot of us who are grounded in the liberal studies and liberal arts say is you need critical thinking. But then I, I find that I am challenge to define that. And I think you were telling me in terms of what they're asked to do. So could you drill down on that a little bit and tell me what you mean by critical thinking and what they go through? Because the assumption is that then they graduate with some ability to think critically. Yeah. I mean, I think thinking critically gets students comfortable with the idea that a lot of questions don't involve black and white answers, but get them comfortable in the gray zone of trying to figure out issues. So so analysis, taking things apart to see how the different components work. And when I say things, 
as engineers, they're, they're used to physical things, but, but taking ideas apart to see how they work. What's their history? How are they applied in different contexts? So the whole shape of the sophomore seminar includes some exposure to, for example, social science approaches to problems. That means thinking about how do you even measure human responses? How do you compare them? How do you analyze them? And in addition to that sort of social science approach that analyzes human behavior on both a big and a small scale, there's also the humanities approach, which exposes them to great ideas that have been expressed through literature, art, and those can be contemporary. So great ideas doesn't necessarily mean always going back to the ancients. It also means thinking about, for example, I'll be teaching sophomore seminar next term, and I'm assigning the novel Clara and the Sun, which explores things like the development of AI, gene editing, human loneliness, right? So the critical thinking part comes in to get them to think about what is their experience in the world and what is the experience of others in the world and a broad sort of cultural preparation. So that's in even smaller than a nutshell, the sophomore seminar. The other thing that you had mentioned to me, which I like, is the idea of questioning sources. I mean, if you absolutely if you boil today's popular culture down, I think there's this is oversimplified, but you've got an assumption that there are these people on this side that just take CNN for gospel and people yeah. on this side that take Fox yeah. News for gospel. And you right. teach them to think deeper about that, whatever they're listening to or reading. Is that right? Exactly. I think, you know, you, you put your finger right on it. It's we're in a meme culture. And so memes are about shouting, shouting an opinion rather than exploring a question. You know, I, I recently read George Saunders essay, The Brain Dead Megaphone. And what you're describing is very much along those lines and and his reflection on this. And this was written in 2005. So it was a different era, but I think equally divided is what you described. So getting them to sort of come at these questions as questions and not things they've already answered. So is the source reliable? What have others said about it? Can you find evidence to support your position? Can you develop your position through different kinds of argumentation? including things like analysis, compare, contrast, finding logical fallacies. So those all come into sort of critical thinking. And those are really useful skills when they have to problem solve situations that aren't simple issues, right? But that involve working with others, that involve cross-cultural communication and where they have to make their position known and accepted and having those skills that it's all wrapped up, you know, we kind of separate communication from critical thinking, but they very much go together, I think. That's a good segue into communication because you were talking about communications 101 and so on. But but we've also talked about how you shared with me that communications is kind of suffused through the liberal studies curriculum. Yes. And it's not so much what, but how, et cetera. So could tell right. me a little bit about that. So just to kind of review the foundations that I mentioned, there's the Communication 101 course, there's the sophomore seminar, Econ 201, which I'll set aside for now. But one of the things we did recently in terms of revising our curriculum is to say, rather than have one or two separate courses that focus on communication, which we do, we have the one. But in addition to that, writing is infused throughout 
our advanced electives, writing and speaking and presenting. So we have a strong requirement for writing in the advanced electives, not just in terms of number of pages, but really sort of feedback from the faculty. That's really key. I mean, we approach our teaching very much in the dialogue form so that uh, it's the students aren't simply getting information from us, but we're giving them feedback. They turn in papers, we give feedback, and that builds their ability to write and revise their own work. And it gets them to think about their writing as part of their critical thinking, building arguments, presenting them to others, persuading others. So that's a key part of it. And writing also occurs in the senior seminar, which I haven't mentioned yet. And I think that's another key component of what we offer. And it's tied directly to the mission of the university, which includes the statement that graduates of Kettering will be exemplary in their leadership and service. Our focus in senior seminar is on ethics, leadership, and contemporary issues. And so the course is structured around familiarizing students with ethical frameworks, giving them examples and theories of leadership, and asking them to think about contemporary issues where both of these approaches to problem solving can be used to help solve these kinds of of issues. So everyone who teaches that course will cover a case study that will involve a corporation, uh, another case study that focuses on a particular person or leader, and another case study that focuses on an event or issue, right? So you can imagine like right now where the university is shifting to mobility as a kind of focus of of the direction we're going. Um, That does come up in senior seminar for the students as well. So they ask questions of like, you know, how can we build a system that's safe in terms of autonomous vehicles. And we try to push them even further and say, well, it's not simply a matter of making sure it doesn't run people over, but also to think about, for example, in the wrong hands, could a system of mobility end up being controlled for the wrong purposes? Could it lead to authoritarianism? You know, bigger questions. And we have found that the students really jump into that. I mean, they dive into it. And when I look at the student evaluations from senior seminar, consistently, I read that they say, wow, I didn't expect to get so much out of this class. Some of them say it's the best class they've taken at Kettering. So it's a really key component of what what we deliver. Is that partially because they're working with the trees, i.e. whatever engineering issue they're working with, if indeed they're in engineering, and now you're presenting them with the forest and some context, and it makes a wider sense to them, creates wider problems, creates more to think about. Is that fair? Yeah, I I like that analogy a lot. Yeah. I was talking with another Kettering grad and just recently, and she is working on cybersecurity, mostly for automobiles. And I hadn't really thought about that, but, you know, you're designing this cool thing and that cool thing and this feature and that feature. And then you've created a mobile computer that somebody can take over and somebody can take over 10 of them and bring New York City to a gridlock if they put them in the right Right. place. The other questions, the unintended consequences. Now, I want to go back a little bit 
to a word you raised before we go forward to a couple of things I want to ask you further about. And that is a word on leadership. Yeah. You talked about that, I think, in connection at some level with Kettering's mission. And I'm wondering about leadership as it pertains to liberal studies. Do you mean leadership as a topic within? Well, no, as a, as a, as a, as something that perhaps you inculcate, you introduce them to what is the relationship, not as a a leadership studies course, but what is the relationship Mm -hmm. of liberal studies to students learning about understanding, aspiring to whatever relation they have to leadership? Yeah. One of the things that we consistently touch on when we talk about leadership is that we keep returning to the idea that it's relational, that leadership can be thought of as character. Does someone have the character to be a leader? It can be thought of in terms of power relations. And I don't mean that in a crass way, like who has power over whom, but how does power function within organizations, for example? Right. And where can each member of that organization find where their power is? So not a simple top-down situation, but a very kind of multiple sets of nodes going in multiple directions. And that leads us to the kind of way we talk about leadership very often in that course, which is it's relational. And once you realize that leadership is relational, it makes you realize that much of the decision-making for leaders happens, as I said earlier about the human condition, happens in the gray. And in fact, one of the books that is popular among faculty who teach that class is Joe Badaracco's Managing in the Gray, which, you know, it's a very readable book. So the students respond well to it, where he offers up a number of situations where the answer to a dilemma is not clear. And we see that every day in the corporate world and politics And so I think when we talk about leadership from a liberal studies or liberal arts point of view, it's the ability to understand leadership as not a on-off switch or either or or black-white situation, but that it raises dilemmas that require both introspection, who am I and what are my values, but also a deep understanding of complex systems and cross-cultural situations, right? So all of those things, I think the liberal arts, let's take the introspective part. It's very much within the liberal arts where students are reading, whether it's literature or history or sociology or psychology, a lot of what they're doing is asking the question, who am I? How do the I The most work? fundamental question there is. Right. And then a big other part of of what we teach is where do I fit in with the rest of this society, the rest of these cultures? And so looking back historically, looking laterally across the world and looking at other cultures, I think all of these things give them the richness of intellectual experience that allows them to approach leadership as the complex problem that it is. Is it fair to say that your students, as they pass through the liberal studies program, and one could argue that this could happen to some extent anyway with maturity, get a greater move from perception, some of them, that there's more black and white than there really is in the world and a lot more gray, and that you also have to sometimes make decisions with only 70% of the information you'd like to have? I think that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I hope so. Anyway, I hope that going through our 
classes, they realize the complexity of the world that they're they're entering and and hopefully acquire some tools to be able to to manage it and deal with it and go through it. And I think there's another component there too that hopefully to go through it and stay in one piece because the lifelong learning part of this is really important, right? I mean, and that's close to my heart as someone who was trained in literature. There are sort of the practical, applicable results that they get from us, but they're also sort of the habits of mind and approach to the world they get from us. So if they're reading a novel, is that just as the Victorians probably said, a kind of frivolous thing that they shouldn't be doing? I'm probably oversimplifying that. Or is it something where their ability to empathize with a character, their ability to imagine situations and to use that imagined situation as kind of a sandbox to try out questions of ethics and culture and society. That is something useful that they can take forward with them. And as they are, you know, as they suffer the slings and arrows of the industries that they enter, that they'll have those skills for themselves as well to kind of stay sane in all of that and to have reference points to say, yeah, okay, I kind of understand this because I, I took that course with Professor Tannen, who introduced me to discussions of ethics, and I'm able to reflect on this problem that I'm saving now. Well, we've talked about a wide range things from philosophy. We've touched on or mentioned, or you have, philosophy, psychology, ethics, economics. Literature, history, yeah. There you go. And that brings up the whole issue of collaboration and collaborative courses and course clusters, it's not, you know, for those who graduated 30 and 40 years ago from whatever school, you don't go in and take a single discipline as much anymore. There's a lot of people contributing to one sort of idea cluster. So if you could tell me a little bit about that collaborative nature of the way you deliver the liberal studies and the course clusters that you have, because I know they, you know, some come in, some come out, but it's a constant flow in that direction. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about liberal arts at Kettering, and one of the things that attracted me to this department, frankly, is that it is an interdisciplinary department to begin with, that at other institutions that are, you know, this is a smaller institution, at larger institutions, there's an entire college of liberal arts, where the philosophy department is over in the, that wing of a building and then the sociology department is clear across the other side and sociology is focused on a criminal justice program and philosophy is doing something completely different. So here you have cheek by jowl, you know, a, a historian with an office across the way from a literary scholar and down the hall, a psychologist. And I think that allows us to sort of understand and speak to each other. And a course like senior seminar, I don't think would have existed were it not for that close proximity, not just physical proximity, but intellectual proximity between these different disciplines. And I think that has led the faculty in this department to be, you know, not all, but a good number of us to be pretty adventurous about collaborating with others outside of liberal arts, right? So when I first came here and, and just before I got here, this is, would have been 2017, 2018, 
a group of faculty in liberal arts and what is now the natural sciences department collaborated on course clusters. One of them had the acronym GREEN, and it was focused on environmental issues. Another one was called CARE, and it was really about uh, community involvement. And one was CAHEAL, which was about community health. And that was a collaboration between physicists, biologists, chemists, and sociologists, communication scholars, and economists, right? So they were all kind of collaborating on those. We've been able to somewhat sustain the green cluster. The clusters, unfortunately, we have had to kind of rethink them, but I think they will move forward in in a different way. So currently we're talking about the potential of revising the green cluster, for example, for the next phase of its life. Does that relate also? There's a lot of sort of green activities outside the classroom, extracurricular activities. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. So a lot of a lot of the impetus for that was to have an impact on the community and to, as you probably know, Ben Pauly in our department, his book Flint Fights Back was about the water crisis, and so a lot of that kind of scholarship that has a real world impact. That's kind of what we wanted to convey to students through those course clusters. More recently, you know, internally, there are collaborations. In fact, Ben and I are going to be teaching a course on music, politics, society, and culture in the spring. And I collaborated with Leszek Gawarecki, who is in the math department. He and I taught a course on math for social justice this past fall. Explain that to me a little bit. Because if I was signing up for that, sure, you know, I might say that sounds interesting, but I but wouldn't immediately it? know what that is. Yeah, there has been a movement in small liberal arts colleges where the assumption is students might be comfortable with history and literature, et cetera, in those small liberal arts colleges. But for many of them, math is a little tougher. And so couching it in the context of making a difference in the world and social justice issues would allow the teaching of math to be a little more sort of palatable. We took it the other way. We thought, okay, most Kettering students are a bit more comfortable with the math, although there might be folks in the math department who might disagree with me. I don't know. (laughs) Let's see if we can introduce them to some of these issues of social justice. Leszek approached me. This was sort of his brainchild, so I want to give him credit. And the impetus for him was seeing things like the results of climate change, the impact of climate change on various communities, protests around policing and race. Human trafficking was another issue that was much in the news. And he thought, can we take the technical skills that we give students and allow them to explore these topics and find ways that they can contribute positively to these issues? And we were very careful, as I said earlier, we, what we present is ways of understanding these issues, not the answers. And we were very careful to say, okay, here are these issues, here are these skills from the social sciences and humanities, mainly philosophy and sociology. But also here are these issues from math, including things like graph theory and some basic calculus to apply to problems that have both a quantifiable set of questions, but also a set of questions about society and human relations, right? So I don't know if that 
It does. It, it does. What, what yeah. you're saying is I can take my math skills and bring them to analysis and understanding of social issues. Yeah. Which might make someone who is not sure how to approach social issues, gives them a better way to understand them, a better way to approach them. Yes. And by the same token, see how the questions of society influence how you use those math skills. So I'll give you the, an example. One of the one of the key texts we covered was an essay by, by a scholar who studies human trafficking and slavery, contemporary slavery, Kevin Bales. And the title of his essay, I'm not going to remember the exact words, but it was something like The Difficulty of Measuring Slavery. And he actually includes, you know, some mathematical equations about, you know, how do people come up with estimating the number of people who are enslaved or in forced labor, for example, globally. But he goes beyond that and says, this issue is not, can't, should not be isolated. It's interrelated. And he says that one of the ways we can measure this is to look at places in the world where climate change has had a huge impact, which results in vulnerable populations, which results in migration, which results in people taking advantage of that vulnerability and enslaving people, basically, or getting them to work and not paying them or inscripting them into sex slavery, et cetera. So the math skills alone would not allow you to ask those kinds of questions. But asking those questions without the math wouldn't allow you to quantify the issue and respond to it in some way. Right. So, so it's a really another intriguing tool to bring into the liberal arts. The liberal yeah, and I, yeah, absolutely. And I think what the students, one of the things the students got out of it is, I think the best moments were when Leshik and I debated each other and they got to see that, you know, when we disagreed on something and we demonstrated to them kinds of civil debate that is based on evidence and respect for the other person's opinion. I mean, that was one of the most instructive parts of the course, I think. Now you're getting into entirely extinct behaviors. <laughs> um, well, I think that was our point. That they're not yeah, that's, that's great stuff. I have two questions, and we've gone longer than we said we would here, but, but one's a definitive question, a much more concrete question. The other's, you know, sort of a liberal studies kind of thing. The first question is, there are other STEM institutions around the country, and you talk with your colleagues. In fact, you said that you, you have made somewhat of a career of being a, a liberal studies guy in a, STEM institutions. Right. How does Kettering and the way you are handling this, either in the, the amount or the size or the approach or anything, differ from your peer institutions? Is it similar? Is it wildly divergent? Other than having started here a few months before a global pandemic, <laughs> which I think colors how I see my experience here so far, I think I can kind of look objectively at the differences between this institution and others. And it, and it really is unique. First of all, it is, it is small. And I think that's an asset because it's very focused in what it does. Its history obviously is quite unique in that having been GMI and developed out of that. And out of that comes its close relationship through the co-op program with industry and industry partners. 
And so finally, because of all that, I think it attracts a particular kind of student. And by kind of student, I mean what the student wants to get out of this experience. And they know that there's the co-op. I mean, that's one of the things that draws them. They know that there's the A section, B section, where you know, you're know you doing an academic term and then you're actually working in the field that you will eventually be a part of. So they want to get to work. They want to do, and they want to almost like apprentices or in a sponsorship with a company, they're moving that direction. What does that mean for the liberal arts? I think that makes what we do in the liberal arts all the more challenging, right? Because if they want to get to work that quickly, to say to them, reading this novel is good for you, (laughs) obviously we're going to have to sell that in a different kind of way, we get some resistance. What I really respect about my colleagues is that they understand that and they know how to approach these students and make what we do relevant for them. So I think ultimately that word relevance is really key for me in understanding how liberal arts fits into this particular institution. Well, see, I told you I had two questions, one definite and one more general. The general one had to do with relevance. You went there, which is where I wanted to go anyway, talking about the challenge to stay relevant and how it seems to me that liberal studies helps the university, help the students do that in some sense. Oh, absolutely. And it's evolving. You know, I think one of the things I can say is we've hired folks in philosophy and psychology, which had been represented in the department, but not for a long time. And even when they were represented, it was often someone teaching outside their disciplinary training, you know, sociologist kind of exploring philosophy, for example. So the term relevance, I'll trot out that familiar metaphor of you never step into the same river twice, right? It's constantly changing. And I think we are still the liberal arts river but the particular sort of water that's flowing through it now is slightly different and that continues to evolve. And I think what I'm seeing is that we wanna remain relevant for the bright future that we've outlined based on the work of the task force a couple of years ago and President McMahon's memo from last year. And that relevance right now has to do with thinking about psychology, ethics, the connections that, that students make between what they learn in our department and the jobs that they'll have. But ultimately, going back to the bigger picture of relevance, I think what we bring to what we do in liberal arts is that before students are engineers or computer scientists, before they are professionals, before they are students even, they are citizens and human beings. And so we also want to remain relevant to that part of who these students are. And it's in our department that they get that. And in a sense, I see all Kettering students as our students. Certainly they major in a particular field, but they gain sort of a shared sense of what it means to be a professional and a citizen and a human being in part from us. I mean, certainly they get it through their families and their churches and their communities, but I like to think that we get them to reflect on what that means for them. And at Kettering, they all have a chance to get that because every single one of them sits in your liberal studies classroom. It's not something they can avoid. That's right. 
That's right. That's yeah. right. Captive audience. <laughs> well, Baba Kalahi, thank you so much for an extraordinary window onto something that maybe a lot of people don't think about inside a STEM institution, but which is in fact a tremendous part of the education of Kettering students. And I appreciate your time and your effort. And hopefully we can talk again. My pleasure. And I look forward to it. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.